All right, so last week when we ended up, I ended up, I said, okay, these are propositions probably that most of us hold. First, that when God commands something, we believe God is good, and that command is, is, is morally permissible. Second, most of us, I think, believe that the Scriptures are an author, authoritative revelation of God's commands. Okay. Third, I think most of us believe it's impermissible for anyone to commit genocide. And fourth, is according to the book of Joshua, God commanded Israel to commit genocide. So, if, if, if we're going to keep our heads together, probably one of these has to go at least. You think? So, so that's where we're going to start today. Is how do we get a, how do we come to understand this, and and what do we do with all this? So, let, let's look now at Deuteronomy 20. God speaking to Moses he says, "As for the towns of these people, the, the, the Lord your God is giving you his inheritance. You must not let anything that breathes remain alive." You shall annihilate them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord God, your God, has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do the abhorrent things that they do to their gods. And thus, you thus sin against the Lord and your God. Sounds pretty genocidal, huh? Ethnic cleansing, whatever. All right, so... so what we got to do is how are we going to deal? How how do we understand this? And the, the old simple approach, you've heard this hermeneutic before. God said it, I believe it. That settles it. And that and, and that's a valid hermeneutic. That's a valid, valid way to look at it. And and there's support for that. Look at the book of Job. The whole book of Job is a big debate between Job and his three friends where Job says, God is punishing me unjustly. I wish if God would come down to earth, I'd put him on trial right here, and we'd see who's right. You know, if you haven't read the whole book, you know, most of us read the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters and skip all that meat in the middle, and the meat in the middle is hard to digest. But, but what you see is that Job was very frustrated. He was angry with God, fighting God. In the end of the book, God finally appears. He, you know, he says, "Gird up your loins like a man. Get, you know, get ready. I will question you, and you will declare to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified?" And he goes on. We all know those great passages. How God says, "Where were you when I made the earth? What were you? You know, where, how do you get off questioning me?" Okay. So that says, you know, we really shouldn't question God, but. A couple of chapters later, Job responds, God speaks again. And he speaks to Eliphaz, who is one of Job's three friends. And he says, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So these were the guys who were saying, Just accept that God, it's, it's God's will, you're not a good person. And it's the guy who questions. It's Job who God commends. So, so instead of just accepting everything, there's a hint there that, that sometimes we need to really question. 
we need to understand, we, we need to try to understand. And, and it's okay if you've, if you've ever read all the Psalms, you know, the Psalms, are, it's, it's, it's like the blues. You know, they're not all saying wonderful, how wonderful you are, God. They're saying, how long, God, are you going to make me suffer? How long is this going to last? Where's my justification? Where's the God I need? You know, there, there, people complain against God. There's even, you know, a literary form called a complaint. In Job, there's the literary form of a covenant lawsuit where, where God, you know, Job wants to bring God to court and bring a suit against him. So it's going to, I want to say, it's, it's all right to question. And we need to question sometimes. So a couple of things uh, we're going to talk about in the next several minutes. We're going to talk about internal issues. And, and the real internal issue is that we see people and cities in, in, in the book of Job that appear to be destroyed and wiped out, eradicated, annihilated. Then later in Joshua and Judges, there they are again. So what's the deal with that? There's in, there are internal issues about this uh, annihilation issue. Uh, the external issue we'll talk about a little bit as well. Current archaeology, uh, and real emphasis on the word current, because archaeology changes. But right now, the current state of archaeology doesn't support this kind of picture of a very quick, rapid conquest, the Blitzkrieg we talked about last week. So we're going to talk about both these issues, and then we're going to try to come in and say, can we resolve? Is there a way to resolve all this? And again, we're going to get through this this week, and then hopefully we won't have to mess with it. We'll go on and learn some of these great <laughs> lessons from the book. But again, uh, I'm looking at a couple of passages early, in, or fairly late in Joshua, actually. This is the 10th chapter. Uh, you know, Josh, uh, this is sort of a summary of the Southern Conquest. Uh, you know, King took the city, king and its villages. Everyone they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king what they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. Subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, yada, yada. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And subdued from Kadesh Barana to Gaza and the whole region of Goshen, Gibeon. Here's a similar deal that's focused a little more on the northern area. Chapter later, took the whole land, captured all the kings, struck them down, putting them to death, waged war, uh, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. No one made a treaty of peace. And we'll talk about that. That's a really... There's actually a little humor, I think, in Joshua. And the Gibeonites, are, I think, are funny. <laughs> I think they're, they're, they're neat guys. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. And, and then... No, Another phrase, the Lord hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so they might totally destroy them, exterminating without mercy. Wiped out Anakim from the hill country from Hebron, utterly destroyed their towns. No Anakites were left. So again, total destruction, total, total, you know, everything's done. Do you get the, the impression you get reading this is the job is done, right? The land is conquered. Okay, that was... Joshua 11. Go to Joshua 13. Joshua's old advanced in the years the Lord said, you are old and advanced in years and very much of the land still remains to be possessed. What's this? We just, we just heard everything's done. It's conquered. Uh, land remains in the region of the Philistines, the Geshurites, uh, five rulers of the Philistines, Gaza, Athlon, Gash, Ekron, so here we get a, a little different picture. All of a sudden that, well, maybe not 
everything is quite as, as possessed as we got as as Joshua stated earlier. There's still a lot to be done at this point. Same book. Uh, here's another example. Remember the Anakimites or Anakin, whatever they are, people in Anakin. Wiped out. Go back. Okay. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. So here's Caleb wanting to take over the land he's been allotted. So now give me the hill country as the Lord spoke. If you heard the day how the Anakim were there, great fortified cities, it may be with, and I shall, shall drive them out. All, all of a sudden, these people who are supposed to be wiped out still have to be driven out. And now we even find out uh, he got a portion. Uh, Caleb uh, drove, he didn't wipe them out. He, again, he's driving out the three sons of Anak. So, and now he's going to go up against the inhabitants of Debir. Remember Debir? See if I can find it here. Okay, left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Lebanon its king and Hedder. So we're, we're seeing internal inconsistencies in Joshua and especially when you go into Judges that areas that appear to have been totally wiped out, the people totally eradicated, are still around. Gezer. You know, Gezer comes up to help Lachish. Joshua struck him and his people, leaving no survivors. Then we go down to Joshua 16. It says, they did not, however, drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live with Ephraim and have been made to do forced labor. And similar statement judges the Ephraimites did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, but the Canaanites lived among them. So again, internal... All the old geezers alone? <laughs> oh. <laughs> the old geezers were... Maybe, that, maybe that's it. Maybe just the old geezers got wiped out. And then the young people became old geezers. And that's who we're talking. That's that's certainly a possibility that they weren't they the young ones weren't considered geezers. I think you've hit on some profound theology there, Hilton. May have to find another class for you. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Hazor, the city of Hazor, Joshua eleven. Uh, Jabin, king of Hazor, you know, goes, goes on, sent to King Joab. Joshua turned back the time, took Hazor, struck its king with a sword put to the sword all who were in it, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. But then we get to Judges, and here's our friend King Jabin again. So the Lord sold them into the hand, uh, the Israelites did what was evil. The Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. Now it's possible that uh, Jabin is a dynastic name, that whoever was king of Hazor was named Jabin. But nevertheless, Hazor is still around. Okay. Uh, just on one more, the Amorites, this is the famous battle where the, the sun stood still, but again, the Amorites are just destroyed here. And then we get to Judges. The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country, did not allow them to come down to the plain. So the Amorites not only are still around, but they're powerful enough that the Danites can't overcome them. And then in, later on in Judges, so the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, took their daughters and wives and, and worshipped their gods. Exactly what God had warned against. So, so we're, we're getting internal inconsistencies here. That's the first thing. And, and uh, I don't like that. I'd rather everything be real consistent. But hopefully when we get through, we're going to have some, be able to work it all out. Several possibilities. One is, 
you know, that there's time going by here that uh, cities that are originally destroyed may have been resettled. And those people may have taken up the, the names. Uh, uh, one account, if we look at our four premises, we can say, well, maybe the Bible isn't as factual as we'd like, that Joshua's accounts are, are more propaganda than they are a factual history, and we're going to talk about this some more when we close out, that, that Judges is actually more, more factual and it fits better with a lot of the archaeological evidence. We still have some problems, though, with God's command. And this is one I want us to think about, and that is, it should be Joshua instead of Judges, that Joshua contains hyperbolic language. This is why I said, is God like a high school football coach? If a high school football coach goes says, I want you to go out there and rip their heads off, do we accuse him of, of attempted murder or, or inciting his students to murder? Why? Because we all realize he's using hyperbole. He's overstating. No, you know, again, and, and, and when the players come off the field, they say, we killed them, we slaughtered them. Do we call for undertakers to come in and, and, and carry all the defeated team off the field? No, because we realize it's hyperbole. Uh, and, and I think, you know, for us, it's hard, you know, we, we, we kind of want to take this book very literally. And it's hard for us to look and say, well, gee, maybe there's hyperbole in the Bible. So when God says, wipe them out, he doesn't mean kill everyone, but he's, he's, he's saying, you need to, to be strong. Remember when we, talked, when we first talked about Joshua, we, we counted four times in the first chapter of Joshua, there's a phrase that said what? Strong and courageous. And God's saying, this isn't going to be hard, but you're going to have victory. You will defeat them. You will win. And, and again, remember we're, what, 3,000 years at least, maybe 3,500 years removed from all this. What may seem to us to be very literal language, they may have all known to be hyperbolic. Just, again, just like, imagine somebody a 1,000 years from now finds records of and finds out that football coaches were telling their kids to go out and kill the other team or rip their heads off. And they say this, this was the most barbaric issue, you know, times of history when young people went out and killed each other. You know, how, I mean, if they're reading it there, it says, the coach says, go ahead and rip their heads off. So this is an explanation I, I like. Yeah, John. I think we have the same example, though, in, in a lot of Christ teaching. For example, it's a journey and not a, a, an accomplished fact. Where it's a, uh, we're told to be perfect, but no one's going to be perfect, but we strive to, in that yeah. direction. Yeah. Is that the same thing you're saying here? Well, no. Sort of? I don't think so. What I'm saying is that we're looking at a figure of speech, an idiom, if you will, that to us means one thing when it's been translated, but the Israelites may have totally understand it, understood it totally differently. Yeah, Paul. But then, when these people that were commanded to be totally destroyed get to judges and they show up again yeah and god ain't happy with that no he's not and 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 and, and 
this still doesn't uh, the other thing I was going to say is is not only do we I think we see God's hyperbole hyperbole in God's command but we see hyperbole in Joshua's description of the campaign that that when Joshua says we wiped them out we you know we really didn't wipe them out we, we beat them in a battle you know but guess what they're still around and they come back and and yeah, I, I think you make a good point. God, and God is not happy. The, the, the conquest, certainly, and we'll see it more when we get to Judges, the conquest didn't go as smoothly as, as one might hope because we see these people are still there. Let me go back here real quick. I'm sorry. And we get back here, and what happens? They make... Get rid of the, take the knot out. They may teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and thus you sin against the Lord your God. The exact thing happens that God wanted David not to happen. Just uh, by coincidence, I've been reading uh, David Lipscomb's book on civil government. And there's, there's an interesting piece of work. It is. Um, his whole premise. Right. Any government man is of the devil. Yep. And he uses Joshua and God's commands to Joshua as proof of that. That okay. he um, yeah. He wanted a people, his chosen people, to live in this land and have no government but God. Right. And the only way to accomplish that was to completely annihilate current residents because if they left things alive, they would influence yeah. the men to accept things more government from man. Yeah. And so Lipscomb, although hated war at any time for any reason, thought this was justified to establish God's kingdom yeah. in Canaan. Yeah. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with you know, David Lipscomb, after whom our university hears name, but he had very, his views on, on government were very unusual for most of us. I think he may have voted in one or two elections, but normally he did not vote. He, again, he believed kind of all government is, is bad. It's, 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 it's propagated, it's run by corrupt humans. And, there are, and because of that, it's always going to be corrupt. It's always, there are always going to be problems. Well, God tells Samuel. When oh, yeah. Time, he says, look, don't be upset. It's not you. They're, reje- they're rejecting me. Right. I'm their king, and yeah. they, want, they want him. Yeah. So. Pretty disturbing to read a book from David Lipscomb telling me as a state employee I'm serving the devil. <laughs> well, some of us not so surprised. <laughs> No, okay. Are you sleeping at night? All right. But so let me ask, so what are your thoughts on all this? Anybody you know, I mean, one one Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, this is not the first time in the Bible that God destroys whole cities. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. I mean, that that whole city there was destroyed because yeah. of sexual violence. Yeah. And these people here that Joshua is destroying now they are in a, a city of sin. Yeah. It's just, just like last week with the spies. 
Let's go back to our four propositions. Or, uh, you know, one of those was that it's uh, it's got a, a just God would not a just God would not con, uh, propose a genocide. Well, that's our morality. That's what we believe. But probably a thousand years ago, people didn't believe that. They probably said that's fine. Hmm? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, 3,000 years ago, they didn't. You know, uh, as, as, as much as we like to think we're morally right, morals change. The, the societal morals change. There are things, even in my lifetime, where we've, and all of you can probably think of things that have changed radically in terms of, of what in the public eye is considered moral and immoral. You know, it, it, that's... Uh, the idea that something is considered, I'll make sure I say this right, immoral at this time in, in, in our history is not something I want to drive a stake in the ground and say this is what it's always going to be. Because I, you know, I grew up in Alabama, an incredibly racist place, a little town called Scottsboro. That's an infamous town. If you know this history of civil rights, Scottsboro is, is, is a story that's a shameful story. But, you know, the, peop the people who lived then, the, the white citizens of that little town, thought they were all God-fearing good people. And thank goodness we didn't drive a stake in the ground right then and say that's, that's the way it should always be. So, so our, our views of morals are going to change. So that, that's one we may question. Uh, and we may question, as we're going to see later in the end, about the how factual the histories of the Bible are uh, and just in the way they were written. Uh, again, that's a disturbing idea. It disturbs me, but we need to look at it. Yeah. One thing is, you know, we have these stories in the Bible primarily about God revealing himself through Israel. Yeah. He says, when you go to the promised land, don't think I'm giving you this land because of your righteousness. Right. Primarily because yeah. of the sin of the other people, yeah. which means that there's some relationships and stories going on of God and these other people that we right. don't know much about. Yeah, and 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 you know when we talk about Israel being the chosen people, I think it's always good to step back and say, what were they chosen for? To reveal God. Yeah, and 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 look at the language, especially in the Psalms. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. Everybody remember that phrase from the Psalms? Per occurs lots of times. What does that mean? To me, that means Israel had an evangelical role to fulfill. They weren't just a... God didn't intend them just to sit over there by themselves and say, we're it. He, wa he wants them to go to all the nations and say, Yahweh is God, that all nations will fall in and, and realize that, that the one true God is God. 
Yes. And you got to look at it. There's only two people crossing the Jordan that left Egypt. Right. All the rest of them have died. Yeah. Along this way. Yeah. And so they had sinned all the way across too. Yeah. Yeah. And let me just mention, I've got, uh, I actually got called in a lot of help on this. <laughs> I've got a paper over here, if any of you want, I can give you, there's about 10 paper copies here. There's also an li email list here, if you want to I can sign on that, I'll send you an electronic copy. It's an article by uh, Philip Camp at Lipscomb on this idea of the ban and, and hyperbole in, in, in Scripture. And I'll send you some other stuff as well. John? Uh, some, this is a personal way to look at things sometimes. If I don't agree with some things that are, I just call these people, they're part of the craziness. And right now, just looking at what we read and hear on whatever channel uh, we watch, somebody's crazy. How about mm -hmm. that? Well, I mean, what I'd say is look at the people, look at the people who occupy the land. They, they sacrifice their children. You know, they... they uh, and and crazy is another place where you can't tie, drive a stake in the ground. Because crazy changes. <laughs> yes. I think we have to realize that God is in control. Mm -hmm. God is in charge. Yeah. How he does things and why he does things is not ours to question. Uh, yeah. For example, how many of us would have decided to have Noah build the ark yeah. and kill all of mankind except his family? Yep. But God chose to do it that way. Yeah. So it's not our question, it's not our place to question God's thoughts. The only thing I'd come back to say, what did he say to Job? He said, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you did wrong. Job who questioned me. Job who says, come and meet me in court and I'll, I'll, I'll win the court case. He said, Joshua is the one who spoke right. So I think there is a place. We have, you know, I think it's okay. Read the Psalms when the people say, How long, Lord, how long? You know, yes. Look at the definition of genocide. It just says the wiping out of a large group. Uh -huh. It never says that it wipes out everybody. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to say, too, is that God was trying to make an impression on these people of who he was. So when he would say something, he wanted him to know, the people to know that he was a jealous God and that. He didn't put up with the sin of the people. And so it was more of almost a, a speaker who's motivating his group. Mm -hmm. When he would say, I want to wipe out these people, he is wanting them to know, this is what I stand for. Yeah. And this is who I am. And so he's really trying to round up the troops to, to help hit them to know, this is the kind of person that I am. This yeah. is who you're following. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things, too, that he would say, wipe out everybody because... They're a sinful people. I want, yeah. I want them to be, I want the people to be like me. Okay. <clears throat> um, I guess a couple of things. One is what Hilton said makes a lot of sense to me. You know, at one point, the, the story of the Bible bumps into a high priest in Israel. And that's about the time of Abraham. And then years later, when they're back over, there, things have changed. And we don't know what happened in the meantime. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot there. But, you know, and, and knowing this was coming up and doing some reading, about it, that over the week, um, I mean, there's an, uh, there's an apologetics issue here because people look at this as one of the reasons why they want to discount the Bible or say, I'm not exactly. going to admit it because God is yeah. ordering genocide in a lot of the 
explanations that people try to put out, it's almost like they're making excuses for God to say, yeah. um, well, that we, you know, we, he's wiping people out so they wouldn't be tempting to Israel and so forth, which are pretty unsatisfying. I think yeah. what you're talking about with the hyperbole makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not an easy question. This is and this is why when I told people I was teaching Joshua and Judges, they said you're what? <laughs> and I, I was tell you, I went up to Lee Camp this morning. I saw Lee and I said, you know, Lee, I'm talking about the band this morning. And I said, do you have any? I said, give me some words of wisdom. And he thought a minute. And he said, be warmed and filled. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, and then we're gonna go on. Um, who was it that? Uh, who who were they fighting when Moses had to hold his arms? Who was it? Is that the Amalekites? Uh, I think it was the Amorites. Amorites, okay. Uh, okay, I was thinking the Amalekites, and they nope. keep showing up over and over and over. That's I thought I had that on here, but maybe. maybe. Anyway, it's, it's, it's one of those one of those a, one of those A folks. Yeah, I don't know whether they showed up again or not. They all, most of them show up again. Okay. Yeah. okay anyway. Let's move on a little real quick now, and, and we'll have some time at the end. We can talk a little more. Talk about, there's, there's some real controversy about the dating of Exodus. Basically, two, two theories of thought. One has occurred around 1200, the other around 1400 BC. Just uh, basically, early dates uh, would have been in the time of Pharaoh Tutmos III. It's consistent with the biblical narrative. There's some evidence possibly from Jericho, the Amarna tablets. We're going to talk about these. And then, uh, one we won't talk about is, is archaeologists see really evidence of the first evidence of sort of Israelite style housing and things around 12 in the 1200s and then we'll kind of go through these other ones. The biblical dating again there are 400 uh, this is what first Kings 6 the 480th year after Israel came out of the land of Egypt fourth year of Solomon's reign and, uh, he began to build the house of the Lord so th he says and, and this is a date that you can kind of tie down in history Solomon's temple so that would say the Exodus took place in 1446 B.C. But when you look at the Old Testament and you look at numbers, uh, if you're, some of us look and say, is, is the 480 number meant to be a chronologically significant number or is it meant to be a theologically significant number? Uh, 40 is a number associated very often with trial and, tr and probation, uh, 40 days in the wilderness for Christ, 40 years wandering, and so is, is 12 times 40 s symbolic here, or is it a real date? And, and it doesn't bother me either way, uh, but that's something to think about. Uh, early date also, you have the account of the tabernacle singers. It's given over here in uh, Chronicles. There are 18 generations. If you figure 25 years a generation, that works out to about 450 years. Uh, Jericho, Jericho is a very controversial city. Uh, this archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, Look, and she says uh, uh, Jericho was destroyed 1550 B.C. And, and basically unoccupied until 1200. Now, she, let, she bases that on the absence of import pottery. This other guy, Bryant Woods, comes in. He says, well, he said it was destroyed about 1400. But he said because Catherine Kenyon didn't look at domestic pottery. So that's, if you want to delve into that, you can, under, you can study it all you want. But... I don't, I'm not an archaeologist, but that just to let you know that there is controversy. But if you buy the Bryant Wood interpretation of, of the pottery, then that would fit in with a late, an early uh, destruction, early exodus. The Marna letters written from this king, king of Jerusalem to Pharaoh Akhenaten. Uh, 
Here's, here's a guy in the Middle East that says, we need military aid or the bad guys are going to take over. <laughs> but the significant thing here, he says, the habiru, also you might see it written the operu, sounds a whole lot like Hebrews. So, so abi, whatever, says, the habiru plunder all the lands of the king. If, archer, oops, if archers are here this year, if you send the aid, then the lands of the king, my lord, will remain. But if the archers are not here, then the lands of the king, my lord, are lost. You know, if you replace archers with cruise missiles and drone strikes, we're right up to date in the Middle East, right? <laughs> so again, in the Middle Eastern leader. But the, but the idea here is, is if the Habiru are Hebrews and they're already in the land, then this would say it's an, it's an early exodus. Okay, that's the Amarna letters, and this is, this is one of the cuneiform tablets. Uh, okay, so let's go to a late date. In Exodus 1.11, the Hebrews are, are, are told that they're going to build supply cities, Pithon and Ramses, for Pharaoh. And then the, we're told later on they journey from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men. This is the start of the Exodus. Well, the first time, if, if Ramses, where does the name Ramses come from? If it's a Pharaoh, then that, the first Ramesses was uh, 1292 to 1290, two-year reign, not much of a Ramses. But the, the real significant is Ramses the Great. So it, it could be that he built these cities and that would put the Exodus late, or yeah, late, in 12, around 1200. So those, uh, Hazor, we talked about Hazor being destroyed. It was, there's a, and it, was, it actually is one of the few where, where Joshua says it was burned with fire. Uh, there are about 1200, 1230, there's a stratum that shows signs of a fire. Uh, there are cuneiform tablets with this name, which may be something related to Jabin. Uh, there are signs, you know, again, of a large city. And here's the, the passage that will correspond to that. So uh, some would say the, the, the ruins at Hazor are for a late date. Also, the Hyksos rulers, there's a thought that uh, the Hyksos took over around 1700 BC, and then when Ramses came, that was kind of the end of the Hyksos, uh, and that, it may, that meant Ramses may have been the Pharaoh that you know, no longer had a good relationship with the Hebrews and that drove them out. So and again, that would go in with Exodus 12 where it says the people of Israel dwelled in Egypt 430 years. That their arrival would correspond with the Hyksos and then their departure the same. So there are lots of data either side. Finally, we'll talk about some Merneptostella. It is, Merneptostella is really interesting. It's the first extra-biblical reference to, to Israel. Here's a picture of the Merneptostella. There's a little line down here that looks like that. And if you write it out, it says, and Merneptah, Pharaoh Merneptah, again, reigned from 1213 to 1230. And this is, describes all his military accomplishments. And here it says, Israel, this is a sign for Israel, is waste, it's laid waste, and its grain, there's a negative sign, its grain is no more. In other words, their grain stores have been destroyed. And what people say is they say, if you look at this sign for Israel, you've got a throwing stick, which means a foreign people, and you've got two people and a plural sign. Almost all the other nations on that stella, and here's Ashkelon, have this little sign, which means a land. And they say the fact that the glyph for, the, for Israel doesn't have this means they really didn't have a land yet. That they were still a nomadic people. They had not conquered a land. 
And so people will use this to argue for a late date to say it's, it's 1200 and Israel is still not a country. It's just a people. And they say that, you know, that if, if they really had settled and conquered land, that you'd see this sign, there's a throwing <laughs> stick again, and then the word for Ashkelon. So that, that's an argument for a late date. But it, we're not going to worry about it too much. Just so you know, where, and finally, you know, this is uh, just some dating for Bronze Age. Any way you put it, uh, they're going to be in the late Bronze Age. But the other thing that's significant is, is in Joshua, he argues, and, and uh, their iron vessels to go in the treasury. And then we're, they mentioned if they had the Canaanites, they couldn't drive out the Canaanites in the plain because they had chariots of iron. And probably 1500 is 1450 is too early for iron to be around. There's there's iron around in the in, in the ancient Near East, but not a lot. So this would argue for a late date to say these chariots of iron would place it there. So now, and here's here's the here's the most important slide of all those. <laughs> archaeological data will not settle the question of the date of the conquest. Today's archaeology too often becomes tomorrow's footnote about earlier mistaken efforts. <laughs> So just that, that last, that's the most important, but I, I felt it was important. Longer getting through all this stuff this week, let's do it. Let's say a few more words about history, though, because I think this is important. Maybe the, most, maybe the most important thing we're talking about. So what is history? Polemic. What's a polemic? It's a hatchet job on somebody. You know, you, we've all seen this. If, you know, in, anything you read that Donald Trump says about Hillary Clinton is probably a polemic and vice versa. It's not intended to convey the factual history. It's, 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 it's phrased in a way to make it sound negative. And just the opposite of a polemic is a hagiography. Hagiographies were actually books. The lives of the saints were called hagiographies. But in modern day, what a hagiography has, been, has come to mean is a book that is all praise. You know, if Terry were writing a book about me, it would probably be a hagiography. Nothing bad to say, you know. So, and, and, and both these, sometimes we see masquerading as history. An ideology or ideology is an attempt to explain the way things are. You know, and, and, and passages in Joshua are ideological, where it says, you know, they, they piled up the stones and they're there to this day. That's an ideological passage. In a didactic... Uh, educational, you know, that, that it's really meant to educate, sometimes not historically, but morally. So there are all different kinds of things that poses history. And I guess we'd all like to say then there's objective history, which, again, objective is, is the history I agree with. You may, not, you may have a different view, but whatever I like is objective. And that history always has a point of view. You know, if you remember back in 19, what was this, 95, the Smithsonian was going to do an exhibit about the atomic bomb. And some of the historical evidence they were looking at at the time suggested that we probably didn't need to drop the atomic bomb, that FDR knew that Japan was ready to surrender without it. And we dropped it anyway. Talk about raising the stink. People were furious that, that you would even hint that the United States did something wrong. My state I lived in for 30 years, it's a good state of Oklahoma, tried in the legislature last year to ban the teaching of AP, Amer Advanced Placement in American History, because it didn't teach American exceptionalism. 
and it pointed out that the United States had done some things that weren't too nice in the past. And thank goodness they were defeated, but, but the bill was in committee that would make it a crime to teach Amer advanced place in American history. Because we want, we want to look good. We don't want all that na nasty history to come out. And I mentioned growing up in Scottsboro, Alabama, the Scottsboro Boys, if you've never heard that, it's, it's a, a travesty of justice. I never heard a word about the Scottsboro Boys growing up. I was in college before I ever heard anything about it. Because we'll just write that out of history. We don't, we don't, want, we don't want to talk about the bad times. We only want to talk about the good times. So history always has a point of view. Uh, and it turns out actually, partly in response to this, they actually did revamp some of the AP American history. Anyway, you know, we have, it's interesting, the ancients, when we look at how the ancients wrote history, probably the, the first objective historian most people would cite is Herodotus around 400 BC. Uh, we look at narratives uh, that we see from other sources. Here's Mesopotamia, for instance, always about the king or some national history. Uh, he always looks good. There's never anything negative. Always supports the current status quo institution or explains the rise of new regimes. And you see, embellished claims are great victory. Early achievements are presented as current achievements and only positive reported. Things haven't changed a lot in 3,000 years, have they? Egyptian is slightly different. Egypt, Egypt very much focused on stability. So what you see in Egyptian history is this very stable view of history. Uh, the, again, the king and the royal family are always there. It's always very propagandistic, uh, nothing negative. That's why when we saw the Merneptah Stella, there were, no, there were no reports of Merneptah's armies being defeated. If you read the Merneptah Stella, he, he conquered everybody. You know, never had, never had a loss. That's why probably we don't see any, any accounts of the Exodus in Egyptian history. They, they wanted stability, and they didn't want anything negative. And, and if you know, you know, the Bible actually stands out because of that. Uh, uh, there's, again, now we get to the book of Joshua, kind of the things that said, there, there are internal conflicts in the book, there, there are you know, current archaeological issues, uh, but you know, the, the ancients may have written history a little differently. This is a quote I, I found, uh, and, and, and you can, if you want, like I said, if you put your name on that list, I'll send you a copy of all my slides along with some of these articles. But notice this last phrase, in short, biblical history selects and arranges material according to its viewpoint to service its own needs. In other words, the historians, and this is hard, it's hard for me to come to grips with, weren't as concerned with factual accuracy as they were with teaching, a, presenting a message. 3,000 years later, same thing. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> I, I'd argue that, you know, you're talking about objective history, this is a former historian, one that's doing a lot of research now, uh -huh. it's really difficult to be objective. I think what oh, you're yeah. after is multiple lines of sight. Yeah. You're looking for a lot of different viewpoints to reconstruct the total story. Yeah. And I think within the within the biblical explanations, I think your point was well made. Is yeah. They've got their own lens. Yeah. They, they've yeah. got their own lens and way of viewing the world. Yeah. And, and again, it's... It, they weren't bothered by some of the, it, and that's the thing I want to finish up with. You know, somebody either wrote all this book, all these books of Joshua and Judges, or somebody edited them and put them together. 
And for whatever reason, it didn't concern them that people who had been wiped out previously appeared later. You know, they weren't idiots, I don't think. And, and that's why, again, I keep coming back to this idea of hyperbole, that they understood that language, and they said, oh, you know, had a victory. And that's, and that's the way we talk about victory. We've slaughtered them. We killed them all. And so now, again, if those people were, were, were comfortable with that, it's a little harder for us in modern-day America to be comfortable with it, but, but that's, the, that's the best explanation I come up with is this hyperbolic language that's used to, to communicate. So again, that's all I had. We're pretty much out of time. Any, any final, have, I have a final thought to close us out with. I said next week, we're over the hard part, thank goodness. May we never speak of it again. And next week we're going to Joshua and the great, we got him across the Jordan. We're going to start going to battle, go to Jericho. And maybe to AI, or I.